Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston, and across from me is Mr. Charles Thompson. Joining Charlie and I today is Professor Anthony Davies. He's an economist, a speaker, an author, co-host of the podcast Words and Numbers. I know I mentioned this in the interview, but this morning a listener reached out and asked if we'd discuss inflation and more specifically the narrative coming out of the left regarding inflation, I immediately thought I'd actually just like to hear what Professor Davies says about this. So I reached out to him this morning, and he was kind enough to give us his time for this interview. I highly recommend the Words and Numbers podcast, as well as his book, Cooperation and Coercion. Enjoy the interview. Professor Davies, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I, I always want to ask, uh, what's new in your world this week? Well, uh, as of last week, the debt crossed $30 trillion, which is 50% more than the size of the entire U.S. economy. Um, that was new, though not unexpected. It's not, it's not a new high where you want to celebrate. <laughs> are you sure it's not unexpected? Because I, I keep seeing that there was just no way any of this could have been predicted. Right. I know. <laughs> it's astounding. The number, number of people who have said, you know, no one predicted the, the debt going this high. No one predicted inflation going this high. Pretty much every economist in existence was predicting this. Just nobody was listening. Well, that's that's not convenient for the people who want to keep printing the money and sending it out wherever it is that they want it to go. So it's just best to act like we had no idea this was going to happen. I reached, right. out, I re reached right. out today specifically because we had a listener, uh, George, that reached out to us and asked if we would talk a little bit more about inflation and mainly the fact that it, this is being blamed a lot by people predominantly on the left on corporate greed. Of course, all that's happening right now is that people are raising their prices. And if people would just stop raising their prices, we wouldn't have any inflation. Well, the interesting thing about blaming the whole business on corporate greed is nobody blames falling prices on corporate altruism. <laughs> somehow falling prices, well, that's just the way it should be. But, but somehow businesses all of a sudden magically become greedy and prices go up. And Clearly, that's not the case. And the way I know that's not the case is pretty consistently the average profit margin for companies in the U.S. is around 6%. 6% is not that large when you consider the risk of owning and operating a business. So if indeed these high prices are the result of corporate greed, it's, um, it's a matter that corporations must have just suddenly discovered how to be greedy <laughs> after these several centuries of, of the economy being in operation. Yeah, we talked about this just yesterday, and Charlie was mentioning gas prices, and then we mentioned, you know, no one was complaining about gas going down to $1.50 a gallon uh, in 2020. That's all supply and demand, and we all recognize that the price should have gone down on gas. But whenever we yeah. have supply and demand right now, we don't like it. It's price gouging. Yeah, and, and that's an interesting thing, because somehow when prices go up, that's the result of greed. But when prices go down, nobody points to consumers and says, uh, look, you're being greedy because you want to pay a lower price. It's somehow our birthright. Well, of course we should pay a lower price. And I think the difference in, in the two views has to do with the fact that it's very easy to measure one side and not the other. 
It's very easy to look at the company and say, okay, you're charging me $5 for this thing and it only costs you $3 to produce it. Therefore, I can see exactly what you're getting. You're getting two bucks. And every time that price goes up, you're getting more and more bucks out of my pocket and that's bad. The same thing happens on the consumer side, we just can't measure it as easily. So if there's this product that is selling for five bucks and I look at it and I say, you know, I really want that thing. I'd be willing to pay 15 for it, but I don't pay 15, I pay five. Well, you can't measure that $10 benefit I just got. And so we tend to pretend it's not there. And so if the price goes down, well, that's that's actually good because I should pay less. Um, when in fact, the lower the price goes, the more of a benefit, the more of a profit I'm getting as a consumer, we just don't call it profit. Well, and some things, even especially life-saving things, are immeasurable in value for the consumer, right? So, so yeah. you know, it, if, I, if I could save my life for $10,000, what's the actual profit margin that I'm saving? You know, like, I just got a big raise. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I had, in fact, I had somebody argue with me about insulin, um, along those lines and saying, look, these greedy pharmaceuticals, they're charging, I don't know what the number was at the time, a hundred bucks for, for the insulin shot. And, uh, and, and they're just greedy. And I said, hang on, this thing saves your life. How much is your life worth? Right. And an infinite amount. Okay. You just got infinite benefit for a hundred bucks. <laughs> of the two, you're, you're making out like a bandit on this uh, transaction compared to what the pharmaceutical company is getting. I had this realization because I, I had to have my appendix taken out. And we, uh, we got the bill. We looked at everything that we paid out of pocket. I think I might have still ended up paying a couple thousand dollars out of pocket for it more than likely. And, and I was talking to my wife and we're just like, oh, that's too bad. It sucks that the prices are so high on this and all that. And I started thinking, what if I would have paid $2,000 for, oh, I don't know, like a laptop and a cell phone and some computer monitors and, and things like that. I would have thought that that was totally worth it. But here I am looking at something yeah. that saved my life and complaining about it costing two or $3,000. This doesn't make it my priorities yeah. are way out of line right now. And you know, there's a, there's a beautiful mental exercise here that uh, I don't know if he originated it, but Don Boudreau, the economist, uh, told it to me. And I think it's fascinating. Ask somebody, would you rather have 2022 healthcare prices and 2022 healthcare quality? Or would you rather have 1950s healthcare prices and 1950s healthcare quality? And virtually everybody, if you stop and think about what's involved and the differences there, everybody will say, yeah, give me the 2022 quality at the 2022 prices. Okay, what you just said is that the higher quality we're getting is worth more than the higher price that we're paying. So in that sense, healthcare today, as expensive as it is, is a better deal than healthcare was in 1950. Yeah, and you can't really account for that technology. And that, now, that doesn't mean to say that it couldn't be better because it absolutely could. Right, that's correct. It, it, yes. You know, we could even have higher quality care for an even cheaper price, which is the beauty of the free market if we would allow ourselves to get there, let's now, say. We left out the third option, though. You mentioned those options. Bernie told me that we could get 2100 health healthcare quality for free. 
Oh yeah, that's right. I thought I'm right. Like, yeah, sorry, I interrupted you there, Charlie. Yeah, no, no but because I that, that's top of mind because I just responded to one of his tweets in the past forty eight hours on that. He was saying, "Look at uh, you know Norway and Sweden and Denmark, and they have uh, free healthcare and free college and all this stuff." And first off, none of it's free, right? You're paying for it. You're just paying through taxes rather than paying to your insurance company, but you're paying either way. So he posts this thing talking about the free healthcare, and I said, "Well, hang on a second. If you compare the average tax rates in these countries, in Denmark, Sweden, Norway, the average tax rate is around 45% versus 25% here. And that's all in. That's the VAT and the income tax. Same thing here. Income tax, property tax, sales tax, all of that stuff. So, so what's happening is they're not, you're not getting your healthcare for free. You're paying for it. You're just paying through the government. And um, Thomas Sowell has a beautiful quote here. He says, look, what do you think is cheaper, paying for healthcare or paying for healthcare plus the government infrastructure required to minister the healthcare? Right. And you could look, you don't, it doesn't take very long to look at things like the VA or Medicare or something like that to realize that's the, that's a sham. Um, or look at the other countries and the restrictions they put on different sorts of things. So, you know, a lot of this comes from this new thing, this buzzword that's going around. I've seen some TED Talks on it and all kinds of things. So I want, uh, if you could give the audience the 411 <laughs> on modern monetary theory. What does it mean? Yeah. Why Why are so many economists, PhD economists, everybody gravitating towards it as if debt's not a big deal? We can borrow till the cows come home and it's not going to ever affect anyone. We can print whatever all, we want. We can keep printing, although it is actually affecting us right now, but uh, it's not supposed to. So what? what is this whole yeah, modern it, monetary it, theory? In fact, it's, it's affecting us now in exactly the way that economists predicted it would ex affect us. But here's how MMT is supposed to work. The MMT advocates say, look, you don't need to worry about government deficits because the government can print as much money as it wants. And that much of it is true. The government can print as much money as it wants. However, when the government starts printing more money and you have more money flowing in the system and you have the same amount of goods and services that you had before, what happens is prices start to go up. You start to get inflation. Now, the modern monetary theory will tell you a couple things here. One is they'll say, well, you don't have to worry about inflation because the dollar is a reserve currency. And what they mean by that is that the US dollar is held abroad by foreign governments, by foreign investors as, as a place to park their wealth. You park it in dollars. So what that boils down to is, if indeed we start printing money and we start to get inflation, we, the Americans, won't feel the full effect of that inflation because that inflation gets spread over all the dollars everywhere on the planet, many of which aren't held by Americans. So it's kind of like we can go ahead and inflate the currency and yeah, we'll get a little bit of pain, but some of the pain we get to push off onto the rest of the planet. It's not that the pain isn't there, it's just that we're pushing it off onto somebody else. So that's the first thing that the, the first response that MMT will give to the inflation argument. The second response they'll give to the inflation argument is, look, if inflation does become too much of a problem, you got too many dollars facing too, uh, chasing too few goods and services, they'll say that you can increase taxes. You increase taxes to siphon those extra dollars out of the economy. Okay, 
But what they've done here is perform a bait and switch. Because when you've done all of that that I just, just described, the Federal Reserve starts printing more money and you start to get inflation, then the government taxes this money away and the, brings the money supply back down, inflation becomes more stable. What you've done, in effect, is swapped out consumer purchases for government purchases. So you might have the same GDP after that you had before, but what constitutes that GDP will be very different. You'll have many more products that are decided, they're chosen by politicians and bureaucrats, and fewer products that are decided, that are chosen by consumers. And so you change the nature of the GDP to look more like what the government wants and less like what people want. That's the, the bulk of MMT. Well, the the uh, the one thing we've likened it to, you know, if a business goes and gets a loan, let's say I get a loan for a million dollars, if I'm going to pay that back, maybe the bank even created almost a million dollars out of thin air when they gave it to me. But I need to create more than a million dollars worth of value in the economy to be able to pay that back. And so in that way, even the creation of new money, when that happens, I end up creating more value than that out there in society. But when the government does it and they create the new money, it seems like they don't spend the money as efficiently as everyone else. And so they actually are always right. operating at a loss. I feel like after all the money they've taxed out of the economy and spent, if they were good, like a business would be, then we wouldn't be $30 trillion in debt right now. We'd actually just have a massive surplus. But clearly, they're not good at spending their money. Even though it's always talked about when they pass these laws as if as a, as an investment, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and all sorts of right. things. So tell me about, um, so, you know, we hear this this argument quite frequently, and, and there's lots of folks out there who talk about what's currently going on. You know, Tyson raised their prices 20%. Chipotle raised prices 10%. Um, I went to McDonald's the other day, and it, it was almost $10 for one single meal. And I was <laughs> like, wow, I remember when I was a, you know, a kid, and this was 5 bucks, Or the whole family could go for yeah. under $20, you know. Um, but they're also, you know, they're talking about these price raises, but then the caveat they place with it is that they're having record profits, and they're paying their CEOs and their executives a massive gain and all the, all these different types of things. And so uh, what do we say to that? Because it's it's obvious. Well, one of the obvious things is the the actual profit margin you talked about earlier, but um, the ex their expenses going up. What else is involved with that? And, and why does, especially people on the left, use this as such a, a crutch? Well, I... To talk about the profits first, and I haven't seen the numbers, I've just heard people refer to them, that you know these businesses are showing profits. And this is currently, we're in mid-February, and the first time I saw no, um, references like this was in late January. The last numbers that we have were for fourth quarter of 2021, and fourth quarter is always a high profit quarter. That's, that's where you break even. And if you're going to make a profit for the year, you're going to make it there to offset the losses that you made earlier in the year. So, so I, and again, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I would be very hesitant to, to lend credence to someone who says, well, look at all these profits they made. Well, you're looking at fourth quarter. Tell me what you made over the, over the previous four quarters. That would be more reasonable. So, so I, I don't know. I, I can't say much about that. Um, I, I will say this. Inflation, if you want to think about it very simply, it's the difference between the growth in the money supply and the growth in the economy. Growth in money supply minus the growth in the economy. That's roughly speaking, that's inflation. 
if you look at what's happened since we since the pandemic began, so go back to February of 2020, the money supply has grown uh, over 40 percent, 42 percent, I think. Um, GDP has grown four percent. So if you do that math, 42 percent minus four percent, that's 38 percent. We should be we should see prices 38 percent higher today than what we saw in February 2020. That goes to your question about, you know, McDonald's. We're paying so much more. Part of it is that. But the inflation we're seeing as bad as as painful as it's becoming isn't anywhere near that 38 percent that the math says it should be. Actually, in, uh, prices are up eight percent in total since February 2020. And the question is, Actually, the economists would are are less are less surprised at the inflation than they are at the lack of inflation. Inflation should be a lot more right now, and so think about this. And in my hypothesis is that we have been experiencing thirty eight to forty percent inflation. We just haven't called it that because what's been happening is as the federal reserve is printing all of this money to pay for all of this deficit spending the stimulus packages that we're doing the bulk of that money up until recently has gone into financial markets and you see it in financial markets by rising stock prices the S&P 500 is up something like 35% from February of 2020 now think that through for a minute why would the stock market be up 35% when we just went through the worst recession since the Great Depression? Unemployment was, it was the highest it's been since 1929. The economy still isn't back to where it should be. We're suffering all of these serious supply chain issues, and yet the stock market's up 35%? What it is, is all of that money that was printed. It went into financial markets. And here's the thing. When we calculate inflation... We don't count the prices of financial instruments. We only count the prices of goods and services. So, of course, it's not showing up in the in the regular inflation numbers. It's all now. I think what's happening. I I predicted this when I talked to you guys. Oh, good lord, six months or more ago. Back in July, I predicted I think. that when, yeah, when that money starts to move out of financial markets into goods and services markets, then you're going to see a rise in consumer prices. And what's happened? That's exactly what we've been seeing since about July of last year. Mm -hmm. Now, isn't this all just because they're paying their CEOs so much? I mean, that is such a useful argument for people to make. Do you ever get sick of seeing this argument? Well, if they can afford to pay their CEO, uh, what did Chipotle's CEO uh, got paid $38 million and they're blaming their price hikes on the, the worker pay increasing. But that... Do they ever actually look at the numbers before sending these tweets, you think, or is it just an easy argument to make? Oh, no. No, they never do. In fact, that's kind of the fun of whenever someone lodges a complaint like that to me. I ask them, show me the numbers. Tell me, how much is this CEO making? And they can say that, you know, the CEO of, I did the math the other day, Walmart CEO was earning something, I forget what the number was, 10, 20 billion, uh, million dollars. And, uh, and they were saying, well, if you take that money and you give it to the workers, the workers could, could earn more. I said, how many, work, how many people work for Walmart? It's 2.2 million. Now, take that 2.2 million people, and if each of them works full-time, that's 2,080 hours over the course of the year. Do the math. And you could take not just his salary, you could take his entire compensation, his health benefits, the, the stock options, all of that, not just from the CEO, but from all of the C-level executives and give it 
to the workers, and each worker would get something around seven cents an hour. I think people just don't, they haven't stopped to think the numbers through. They see multi-millions and immediately start saying what they could do with that multi-millions, forgetting that there are millions upon millions of workers that you could spread that money out and you don't get much at the end of the day. So no, the problem we're seeing has nothing to do with CEO pay. And I think seven cents an hour is being generous, probably. <laughs> on that More than map. likely. <laughs> yeah. right. We did and, the same thing with uh, Walmart runs at, on average, a 2% uh, Something like 2%, margin. right? So could you imagine- 2% profit margin, right? Could you imagine the stress of that job? Like you have to- Yeah. It, because, I mean, you could move a percentage point pretty easily. I mean, the S&P moved down yeah. 2% today. <laughs> like, so imagine if Walmart moved down 2%. Well, now they're- they don't make any money. So, um, you know, I, I think the guy deserves probably more money than that. Yeah, and, and that that's the thing. And that will be the next step in the argument. But I never get there because people post these things. I say, OK, now do the math and I'll walk them through the math. And by the time I walk them through the math, they just go away. They don't want to hear any more about it. Yeah. But the next step is exactly what you're describing. If you did do this and took away all of their pay and divide up amongst the workers, Walmart would close because all of those C-level executives would leave for other jobs, and all of a sudden you have no management. Is there a big difference? Uh, you know, people also don't realize that a lot of their pay comes from stock options. Uh, that's that's what they end up getting their pay from. Sometimes they even count it when they haven't even exercised the options and even know if they're even going to be able to exercise it. But they're awarded stock, and that's where a lot of their compensation comes from. Does that affect what the companies are making? You know, Do you know, or is this just them issuing new stock and it's not really affecting their bottom line at all? Um, it's not. Now, it depends on how it's done. Typically, typically this is when you give options to a CEO, that money is ultimately coming out of the pockets of other stockholders. So it's the stock. And, and if you think of it that way, it makes even more sense because the stockholders themselves who are paying for this have said, this guy brings so much value. I'm willing to give up some of the value I have in stock so that we can get him on board because at the end, he's going to do such a good job that I'll actually be better off. But yeah, that money is coming out of the pockets, uh, ultimately, of other stockholders. That's what exactly, I just wanted to make sure, but exactly what we said, I think, last week. I think Chipotle CEO, $29 million of his pay was from stock. And we said that for him to receive that $29 million, someone else in the market has got to pay $29 million for all of that stock. So not exactly right. as if they're losing the money when that you happened. And, and, well, and further... He's only making that money if he does a good job. That is, if the stock price goes up. If it goes down, his options are worthless. Consider uh, Elon Musk. If 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 he never reached the thresholds that the board set for him, he would literally make nothing. But mm -hmm. he did hit all the thresholds, so he got to unlock his options, uh, become the you know well on paper the richest man in the world. Let's say that on paper part's pretty important. Yeah, by the way, <laughs> right. It people is think very that important. It's, people think it's in your bank account. It's mm -hmm. not. Not that Elon Musk is hurting for money or anything, but it's not sitting in your bank account or anything. It's a right. big difference. Um, you mentioned earlier your hypothesis uh, about, you know, true inflation, let's say. Um, I do remember Ron Paul talking about this, you know, in 2008, 2012. He was very much a, um, you know, uh, in the Fed. a gold-backed, uh, you know, monetary policy in the Federal Reserve. Um, he was very vocal about this thing. And he, I remember him talking a lot about how the Fed would tout this, 
you know, target 2% inflation rate and they're trying to hit it, but they're only at like 1.7%. And he was always talking about how true inflation was running around eight or 10%. Do you think, you know, a way to get that number, would you say that the, you know, inflated stock market, let's say even from the dot-com bubble in 2000 until now for 22 years, that that new money supply that the Federal Reserve keeps printing and, and it really accelerated in 08 and now it's, exacerbated in 2020. Um, is that kind of how we see that money flow? And, and, and really the second part of this question is, isn't this the real inequality we should be fighting where the people closest to the money in the market, that get all of this printed money who actually see most amount of value from that. And then the, the consumer is left with, you know, the, the, the inflation, the inflation, right? <laughs> I, I think that's right. And this goes back to, I think you're right to go back to the 1990s. This started uh, back at, you know, probably prior to the dot-com era. And um, what was going on is the Federal Reserve was holding interest rates artificially low. And it has held them artificially low for most of my adult life. And this has several effects. One is to push wealth into the stock market because that's the only place that you can get a decent return. Uh, interest rates are, are just so low. And you see this in, you can look at the, the numbers on what fraction of their wealth the elderly hold in stocks versus bonds and savings accounts. Prior to the 1990s, much of their wealth was held in bonds and savings accounts. And that makes perfect sense because if you're living off of this, you can't, you can't weather a, a downturn in the stock market. You want your money to be much more safe. But from probably the late 1990s forward, you see this shift where the elderly are no longer holding their money in the form of, of bonds and savings accounts. They're now holding it in the stock market because the bonds and savings accounts pay no interest rate. So in a lot of ways, what's happened here is by holding interest rates artificially low, um, the Federal Reserve has inadvertently forced seniors to take on more financial risk than they would otherwise be comfortable taking on, uh, simply because they can't find good returns anywhere else. In doing that, they also pushed up the the market while doing so because that's where the money went. And that also helped the wealth of all of those individuals go up and exacerbated the wealth inequality. And like Charlie was talking about, when they print the money and they give it out via the stimulus. Now, this one was a little bit different because we did send money directly to people, a very small portion of the money to people. Uh, but before it would go to the people at the top and then it would trickle trickle down inflation down to everyone afterwards mm-hmm. uh, but of course they would get to spend it before the the value was totally inflated away i don't see a lot of people on the left concerned about wealth inequality talking about this very often i feel like they should right yeah and this is charlie had mentioned this the the inequality of what boils down to the timing of of the spending of the money so along comes the the federal government it's going to spend $6 trillion or whatever it was that they spent back in the 2020 for the stimulus, it doesn't have that money. So the Federal Reserve prints it. Now it doesn't print all of it. Some of it, it does borrow. Some of it, the Federal uh, Federal Government borrows, but a lot of it, a big chunk of it is printed. So with the printing of the money, you don't instantly get the inflation. The inflation comes along after the money starts circulating. So the Federal Reserve prints this money, the Federal Government starts to spend it. It's spending this money while prices are still low. 
It's after the government has spent it and the people who've received it turn around, spend it somewhere else, and they spend it somewhere else, that prices start to rise. And so we, you and I, and the uh, you know, other taxpayers, we're the ones that are left holding dollars that are worth less because prices are higher. The politicians, meanwhile, got to spend those dollars while prices were still low. And we kind of have a double threat right now. I wanted to ask you about this, but not only did we mess with the demand side with the money printing, but we've also messed with the supply side with all the re- the restrictions that we've had over the last couple of years. And so we've got supply and demand both messed up right now. And what I'm what I'm wondering, and I've had a few people ask me about when the supply is able to catch up. Are we going to actually experience a lot of deflation too quickly? Is that a concern that people should have? Because I've had quite a few people bring it up to me. No, no, no. There's no chance of deflation. Now, it is the case, of course, as we get our supply problems straightened out, and that's a whole other conversation, uh, the economy will pick up and GDP will start to rise. And go back to that equation that I mentioned earlier, growth in the money supply minus growth in the real GDP, growth in the economy. And the economy will start to grow larger, which means we've got a more of a minus sign here pulling inflation down, but it's not going to grow nearly uh, to match the increase in the money supply. Uh, we're talking to get, we've, we've experienced a 40% increase in the money supply, a 40% increase in the economy under normal circumstances probably would take, I'm guessing, 25 years. It's not something that occurs over the over the span of, of the five years we're talking about. And the problem of this, the, the supply side, is due to the fact that politicians had this idea that the economy is a switch. You can turn it off like a light. You can turn it back on. You can't do that. You shut it off and lots of moving parts come to a slow grinding halt. And when you turn it back on, the pieces can't get moving because the other pieces they rely on aren't moving. And so you get exactly what we have now. You go to the grocery store and there are random things that are just not there, right? One week it's toilet paper. Next week it's orange juice. Next week it's milk or whatever it is. Random things aren't there. It's what you're seeing is this, our economy in fits and starts trying to get back moving again. And it's likely... It's anybody's guess, but my guess based on people I've talked to who work in in supply chain is we're probably talking five years before we're back to the economies back to normal. Um, And I'd guess it might even be more than that. Simply by looking at what happened in 2008 with our housing crisis, it took us a full decade to get back to to normal following the 2008 recession. It also took us 10 years to get back to normal back in 1929 with the following the great stock market crash. So given those two examples and what we're dealing with now is pretty much the same kind of magnitude, I'd say 10 years is not is not uh, an extreme. And I, one week it was cream cheese. I know that for a fact. <laughs> right. Every, <laughs> one week it was cream cheese, right? Every time yeah. I went to the grocery store, my wife said, hey, get as much cream cheese as they have. They probably don't have it. And I get I'll tell you what, they didn't have it. Mm. They didn't have any cream yeah. cheese. Well, my wife, my wife, every time she comes back from the store, she says it's like Soviet Russia out there, right? <laughs> you buy whatever's on the shelf. If it's mm. not there, you don't buy. If it is, you do, because next week it won't be. Right. I've explored and, and, a lot of new products this year. I'll just tell you that. Yeah. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of brands I've never had before. 
But of course, you know, this is all right wing conspiracy nut job uh, thing. <laughs> but look, I'm not, I don't, I'm not one to like instill fear. I, I don't like fear mongering, but I do want people to know if, if we stay on this path, because it, the spending hasn't really slowed down any, right? Um, we've now crossed $30 trillion in debt. If we keep on this path, what does the, the end result look like? Or I guess a better question is what, what does the end look like? There's going to be interest on that debt too. Other way, yes. that's something we're oh, not yeah. talking about. It's going to be yeah. bad. So, so what what does this look like if we continue on the path? And then, what are some things we can do to correct it um, as individuals? I know that we don't have much power, but what does it look like if we're on this path? And then, is there anything that we can do uh, in our personal lives? Well, what what happens if we stay on this path? Um, two things. One, maybe three things. One is inflation, which we're already feeling. Another is politicians. You're going to see them get crazy. They're going to start looking for any to tax anything that moves. And you see that already with them talking about taxing unrealized capital gains. That's astounding. Unrealized capital gains is not something that's ever been taxed. It's not even a real thing. It's, it's hypothetical money that you might make if indeed you tried to sell whatever your asset is. If they if they pull that off, taxing unrealized capital gains, and we all look at Elon Musk and you know the money that, that he we could be getting from him, their next step is to turn that same unrealized capital gains tax onto the middle class. Because you know what? That house you're sitting in that today is worth 50% more than what you paid for it, that's an unrealized capital gain. Now, imagine the government coming to you and saying, well, on paper, your house is worth 50% more, so we're going to tax you. You owe us $4,000. That's a tax on an unrealized capital gain. So that's the second thing that's going to happen, right? The third is when the first two don't go far enough, they're going to have to start cutting spending. And you could talk about things like cutting the military and cutting welfare and this and that. And the fact is those things are small potatoes. The Big two in the federal budget are Medicare and Social Security, and that's what they're going to come after. They're not going to come after Medicare, at least not initially, because of all the emotional reaction, right? They are going to come after Social Security, and, you know, again, there's an emotional reaction, but what they're going to do is they're going to come after people who have 401k plans, who have IRAs. They're going to say to them, Social Security was never meant for you. It was meant for the poor who don't have any savings. And so you just don't get your social security and that will buy maybe another 30 or 40 years for social security. Uh, but then we'll have the same problem just 30 or 40 years down the road. It's, it's always for the next generation. <laughs> it's yeah, like it's for the children. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's a, fa that's a fascinating thing because one of the things our friends on the left will do is they will argue that the problem with corporations is they only look at the short run which is actually false. The corporations do look at the long run, but there's some optimal, right? Looking at looking further than a week in the future is definitely smart. Looking further than 100 years in the future is stupid. No company is going to be around 100 years in the future. So there's some optimal thing that you need to look at, and that's what corporations do. They have a profit incentive to do that. What our friends on the left tend not to realize is that the people with the real short-term horizon are the politicians. They need to survive to the next election. Mm. And once they get that, they need to survive to the one after that. So their, their views are typically measured in months 
in most 18 months or two years, depending on when the next election is coming. And so you'll get the decisions that we have now. Um, this business about free college, it's stupid. Uh, in, by stupid, I mean it's going to put us back where we were with the 2008 ho housing crisis, only it's going to be five, 10 years into the future. And yet the politicians who are pushing this, why are they pushing it? Because 10 years in the future, they'll be retired. They'll let somebody else deal with the problem. Mm -hmm. But the words get them elected today. And they'll still have access to the inside trading, so they'll be fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, yeah. In, in, your, uh, in your book, uh, which you co-authored with your, your co-host, James, uh, uh, James Harrigan, right? I, I want to make sure that I had Harrigan, that right. Harrigan, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the book is great, by the way, Cooperation and Coercion. And also, I listen to your podcast every Wednesday as well. So we're going to make sure that we got Excellent. Thank all you. those links in there. But you laid out, you guys laid out a really nice plan that made me feel so positive about the potential for solving this, which had to do with freezing our spending and allowing the GDP to catch up. Now, that would happen really fast because what I hear from Biden, we've got the record just fastest growth that we've ever had in the history of the world. So <laughs> I think we'd be able to free spending and catch up in two or three months with uh, with what we got going on right now. But if you <laughs> right. if you wouldn't mind giving everyone just the, the, the elevator pitch of how that works. Yeah, this is the path to a balanced budget. Um, and basically, the ingredients are pretty simple. You cut federal spending 10% across the board. Now, you know, if you want to cut more one place and less one less some other place, that's fine. Do what you like, but it's got to add up to 10%. 10% cut across the board. Sorry to interrupt you there, but when you say 10% across the board, are you saying 10% of what they're currently spending or 10% from their proposed increases? <laughs> no, 10%. Yeah, and see, that's the thing, because when politicians say a 10% cut, what they mean is they wanted to increase by a billion, and so they're going to cut that by 10%. They're only going to increase by 900 million, and they advertise, well, we, you know, agreed on a 10% cut. No, I mean cut in the sense that real people mean it, that you spend 10% okay. less than you did last year. I just wanted to make sure we made that clear because a lot of people don't understand right. <laughs> right. that politicians speak there. But then hold it. Hold that constant for five years, maybe six now, given what's happened with COVID. Six years, hold a constant. And then after the sixth year, you can continue to increase government spending. Just don't increase it faster than the economy grows. If you do that, we can be to a balanced budget within you know, this six-year time interval. Um, now, the problem is that's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because the politicians have no direct incentive to cut the budget, and they have direct incentive not to cut the budget. If I'm running for Congress and... You know, you may like it if I say, yeah, I'll vote to cut the budget, but you'll like it even better if I say, I'll vote to bring this big government program into your neighborhood so that that'll provide jobs for you and your neighbors and all of this. And what happens is you understand that that's going to contribute to the deficit, but it's good for you. So the badness of the deficit is a smaller thing than the goodness for you. And so you say, yeah, okay, Davies, I'll elect you. Go ahead and do that. Now, multiply that phenomenon by 535 members of Congress, and all of a sudden you've got a situation where everybody across the country is asking for the government to spend more money. Just make somebody else pay for it. And so we end up we end up where we are. And they don't realize that they're the ones actually paying for it. And this, you know, this kind of upsets me with our friends on the right. With um, because 
our friends on the left are getting it right in the sense that this isn't technically Biden's fault. It's not all Biden's it's fault. It's not all Biden's fault. And right. and so right. my friends on the right who were like, well, you know, Trump had to sign that law, the $6 trillion or whatever mm-hmm. ridiculous amount of money we spent in 2020 um, it, to give all this money out or whatever. And so this uh, – you're you're absolutely right that it doesn't matter who the politician is. It's it's all about saving face in that short term period. Because if Trump Trump would have had no shot at reelection if he didn't, you know, pass the stimulus package and all of that, right? And and I remember Trump being yeah. like, "Well, I don't like this, but I'm going to sign it." And he, mm-hmm. you know, he still signed it. So I'm just like, you know, you have to look objectively and be like, "Well, that was a catastrophic decision." I think he said that more than once over the over his term. Right. So he, he didn't like it, but he was still <laughs> yeah. going to sign it. You have to think about the political calculus here. Um, what's going through the politician's mind is, look, if you, if I don't sign this, if I do the right thing by the voters, by the economy, I don't sign it. What'll happen is I'll be voted out of office and the guy who replaces me is going to sign it. So either way, it's going to get signed. The question before me is, do I want to be in office or do I not want to be in office? And so in all politicians face that same problem. So they all do the same thing. They say, yeah, we're, we know this is a bad idea, but we're going to do it anyway. So that's why I just tweeted out, I think a few days ago, a politician has two jobs. Number one is to get elected and number two is to get reelected. Those, those are the jobs right. that they have. Yes. And I, I want to underline one really important thing here that I think people on both the left and the right don't appreciate. And that is the way to, the way to prevent this problem is to have a constitutionally constrained government. We got to this place because we allowed our government to break the bonds of the Constitution. The Constitution says, look, the federal government can only do a certain number of things. Here they are. In fact, they're listed. They're like eight things. That's it. And we decided that, well, yeah, but that's inconvenient because we'd really like government to do Social Security. We'd really like it to do all these other things, subsidize college tuition and so forth. And because we thought these were good ideas, we allowed politicians to do things that the Constitution didn't permit. And once we allowed that, they started doing all sorts of things. And we get this runaway problem we have now. Now, none of this says that we shouldn't have Social Security or we shouldn't have subsidized student loans. But if we are going to have them, they need to occur at the state level. The states are not constrained that way. And so let the states try these different things like California is doing. California makes stupid decisions day after day. (laughs) And people learn from that. And what are they doing? They're leaving. They're getting out of Dodge. They're moving to Nevada and whatnot. Why? And and what happens? California is going to be in a situation where it has to cut back on what it's doing because people have the ability to leave and they're doing so. We don't have that ability with the federal government. We're stuck here. Here in Nashville, all of my new neighbors are all from San Diego. It's it's amazing. Yeah. And they're great people. I love them. Um, and you mentioned a, another thing there, which was um, um, the California trying all kinds of stupid things. Did you know that they actually didn't get their medic, like their health care for all passed? They, they decided not or they got voted down. Yeah. So isn't yeah. that something really? in, in the most liberals, one of the most liberal states we have, they couldn't even pass. They just tried it last week. It didn't actually make it to the full floor vote. Didn't it get didn't, out of committee. It didn't make it through because they couldn't even get all the Democrats in support of it because they couldn't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just last week. Yeah. I mean, they're telling you right there. But of course, if we try that on a grander scale, uh, then that would solve the problem. The problem is that California yeah. can't print its own money. 
Yeah. And so we need to, yeah. to have someone take care of it. And we know the healthcare would get way more efficient if it were managed by the U.S. government. Yes. I have a full list of things that the U.S. government took over that got cheaper and more efficient afterwards. Just to, That's right. I can't yeah. find it right now, but I've got a list. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Well, we can't forget uh, Milton Friedman's solution to uh, high inflation, which is high living. Mm-hmm. So y'all get out there and spend your dollars because they're more <laughs> expensive tomorrow. <laughs> Professor Davies, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, we really appreciate it. Please tell everyone where they can find you and get the book and all of the amazing knowledge that you have. Yes, you can find our podcast, uh, Words and Numbers, on all the podcast players and our book, Cooperation and Coercion, on Amazon. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Professor Davies. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>